Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast that gives you tips and strategies you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me my two wonderful co-hosts from the left, Shaylin Allen, our good host. Hi. And from the right, Ben Jurek, our evil host. Greetings, listeners. So how have you all been uh, dealing with... Well, I really can't say all this free time because most of us here on the podcast are still working at our normal rate or even higher than our normal rate. But how's your how's your hobby stuff coming along given this whole situation? So I built a Twitch room and I built 40 guardsmen. Those are both things. What are the guardsmen for? Mike. Oh, okay. These are so these are not your guardsmen. <laughs> They're my guardsmen, but they're not for me. Right. <laughs> I need someone to play, so I'm like, hey, I'll build guardsmen if you will play them. And he said, okay, honey. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> Man, I wish I had somebody to build my models. Oh, well. Oh, I mean, you could. It just costs money. That's definitely true. My weekends have been mostly free. I usually fill my weekends up with all sorts of things, from GTs to other tournaments to other hobbies. But mm -hmm. um, with being uh, being at home, um, I've had a bit more time to hobby. Yeah. But I haven't gotten as far as I wanted to, um, but I did start working on some strike squads. Oh, okay. Yay. I got a little bit more painting done, and I actually, as you mentioned before, I handed off a bunch of stuff to a commission painter. Right. Mm-hmm. Help helping him out because he has a bunch of time at home and I have the income still coming in to afford to pay him. So um, I got a bunch of stuff painted for my orcs. So I'm pretty happy how they came out. So um, that, that's that's progress, just not progress I did. <laughs> well, I mean, progress is progress, whether it's you or someone else painting things. Anything in particular with your orcs that you were sort of like new units that caught your fancy or something like that? I had a bunch of stuff that was just three colored. Um, that needed to get updated. Uh, so I got my tank busters actually all colored up and prettied. I got some characters that definitely needed some love. And mm. the guy I'm using is definitely really good at basing. So they actually have basing now. Ooh. Uh, versus just, ju versus just like some Agrilla and Earth smudged on there to, you know, exist. Right. <laughs> Having a good looking army makes me feel better and makes, uh, you know, it, they might just play better now. The dice rolls might be better. I can't prove that, you know, one way or the other. <laughs> I mean, it certainly feels that way a lot of times. You always, you know when that well-painted unit just goes to town on some stuff, and it feels good. Personally, I have been uh, working on getting one of my knights finished, finally, and at some point I'll theoretically have some more arriving from one of our local game shops that I ordered them off of, but, you know, as you say, it's like everything travels slow in the mail right about now, so uh, I'm not sure exactly how long that's going to take. Yeah, I'm waiting on new Gazcole to finally get here. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to the store that sponsors me, and they don't have them yet, but soon, soon the new Gazcole will join my great wah. Oh, and his friend Makari, too. <laughs> nice. You're, you're clearly going to be fielding Makari in just every army. He's an automatic one-off inclusion. <laughs> I don't think so always that's, I believe that's a topic for a different day but yeah, I definitely have a goth list that I'm super excited for yeah it, you can do some interesting stuff with goths now Gaz gives them a pretty big boost 
Yeah. In the defense of my fiance, he has a little twitch where his body just randomly spasms, and neither of us want him to hold an X-Acto knife. That's why I'm building the models. Yeah, that could be a bit of an impediment. That's why I always feel like, you know, hey, just like let people do their hobby however they, they want to and need to, because some people have legitimate reasons why they are not able to effectively build or paint models. And I don't feel like those people should be excluded from the hobby as a whole just because, you know, some sort of disability or injury or what have you. Yeah, no, he's actually quite good at doing splatter painting, (laughs) which is all about the random. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead and dive into our main subject this week, which is winning and losing at the deployment phase. Because uh, we've talked about deployment before, but I think this time we wanted to focus in a little bit deeper and talk about how you can use your deployment phase to set up the rest of your game. Mm-hmm. Deployment is, as we've touched on a number of times, one of the most important parts of the game. Uh, because it really does, it, it literally sets up everything else you're going to do for the rest of the game. Uh, you know, because where you position those models initially can make a, an absolutely huge difference, because if you want to get them to anywhere else, they're going to have to cover whatever ground you put in between them and the thing they need to get to. Uh, so if you stick them way back on a board edge, they've got another 12 or 24 inches of movement that they have to make over the course of a game, and that can really slow your game progress down. It's big. Yet, that can be very effective if it means you basically make your opponent waste their first shooting phase. Yep. So, deployment is the the foundation of the house we're going to build of playing 40k. Mm Mm-hmm. And the more knowledge you have, the better foundation you can make. Uh, this is the this is the time to make all the key choices and have an incredible amount of foresight about how the game is going to play out. Um, if you understand your opponent's army well and you know your army well, you can see pretty well into the future um, based on like average dice rolls and how things are going to move um, with some predictability of what your opponent may do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically be like, okay, here's how the game is going to play out for these four turns and I win. Cool. Um, you can kind of you literally just envision all that while you're deploying. Yeah. Um, and you and you game plan for that. So this this is that foundation of the house. And if you even if you don't have that knowledge, just the knowledge about what your army does and where your strengths are, you know, in what order and how you're placing your models builds the foundation to win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even if you are not, as Ben said, like entirely familiar with your opponent's army, you probably at least are broadly familiar with them. You can look across the table and say, you know, this is a Necron army. It shoots to 24 inches. That's what they do. That's what the whole codex does. So I I know that's what they are going to do. Uh, Or you can say this is an Imperial Guard army. It's got a lot of bodies and a lot of long-range shooting. Uh, It's going to try and flood the center of the table and keep its artillery in the back. Um, and so even just that level of knowledge allows you quite a bit of being able to predict what it is that your opponent is going to have for a game plan. And the more you know, the better you're going to be able to predict their game plan. Mm-hmm. Also, you know your own game plan, so... Yes, obviously. Don't shoot yourself in the foot here. Your plan is going to interface with their plan at some point, hopefully. If it doesn't, then you two are playing a really weird game. 
so let's let's talk first a little bit about the the major I guess divergence really uh, that we're seeing in styles of deployment uh, between different tournaments and formats right now, uh, which is the ITC's all at once deployment versus the technically according to the rule book uh alternating deployments mm-hmm. uh, because these two you, you really have to approach them pretty differently i think you do um the thing about the alternating deployment is you can react to it as it's going down which means opportunities to make mistakes because your opponent can react to you too yeah, you're you're having many much more of a chance to do things one at a time and react and make differing choices, which can be pretty big. Um, I I kind of feel like in a battle between two smart players, the two types of deployment are actually much more similar, uh, since presumably neither of them are making huge mistakes so they it actually looks like the same thing just in slow motion um but obviously not everyone plays a perfect game every time so being ready to take advantage of those mistakes and deployment that we're going to talk about a little bit later in in terms of what these mistakes are um but being ready to take advantage of those mistakes is definitely a potential advantage for alternating deployment styles yeah, with, with alternating deployment, um, I really enjoy uh, that deployment style, specifically with high drop count armies. Yes. Uh, even if I get a negative to go, just because like it, it still kind of plays like I go an I-go-you-go deployment, because I'm going to place down my 10 units of, of screen and grots, and then your entire army's going to be down, and I can place my actual valuable units. Yeah. Having that high drop count does, it allows you to force the opponent to make the, the quote real choices before you which can really affect things also there are uh reserves for example i put three units of gray knights in the sky right same thing your your reserves are typically going to go in first because they are often not much of a choice it's like of course i'm putting these units in reserve i always put these units in reserve but we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well because always is not ever and if you if you want to play the drop count game of trying to get that plus one to go, which is typically what you get when you finish deploying first, mm-hmm. is you can take transports um, or other things that enable you to drop your drop drop your count. Yeah. Or in cases where you find out that you can have more drops than you planned, you can deploy things outside of transports or even do silly stuff like splitting splitting squads and doing you know, uh, combat deployments with, with space marines and such. Mm-hmm. Alternating deployment is also somewhat important for things that you um, deploy outside your deployment zone. Um, the the I go you go is a bit different with that. Um, I actually believe this is more fair uh, when it comes to those style of units. Yes, because you can't just have whichever player goes first like completely block off the field, as those units can't generally deploy within nine inches of each other. Mm-hmm. Also, a small kind of twist in this is whether or not seize the initiative is still available to you. Yes. Because if you are someone who has deployed such that if your opponent just gets their one and six chance to go first and you're screwed, why did you set yourself up in that position? Yeah, we'll we'll just sort of broadly speak to seizing here since that's a whole thing on its own, but you cannot deploy such that you are assuming you go first. No matter what kind of 
roll off you have in this sort of thing. As long as it is not an ITC like you are guaranteed, if there's any chance that they win the roll off or they win the seize or any of that kind of stuff, you need to be prepared for a seize. It sucks. It may hurt your game plan, but you can't you can't be in a position where they seize and you just lose the game. Um, if you've done that, you deployed wrong. Um, also, if you're in one where you get the diral man- manipulation of the plus one, and you're like, well, I have a small drop count, so I'll always go first, mm. that's not true. Yeah, you, you'll often go first, but... You can roll a one and your opponent can roll a three. That happens. Yeah, absolutely. Addressing the Cs is difficult, but also at the same time, um, it depends what army you're playing. There are some armies that respond to it better, while other armies not so much. Um, armies armies with redeploy strats and other such are like okay cool whatever, right? But what what way I see it sometimes is I will still take a lot more risk um, if I have a high chance of going first or I know I'm going first uh, depending on alternating or I go you go. Mm-hmm. But like if I know C's exists, I'm still gonna you know take as much advantage of it as I can, but I'm not gonna make it so I just auto lose. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, it is about risk management. Is you know how aggressively aggressive can I afford to be uh, given that the seas exists? Uh, but if you're just sort of like sticking all your units out, it's like, well, he'll never roll that six, and you just stick them all out in the open, right in the enemy's gun sights, and it's like it'll be fine, just because I'll just move behind the wall on the first turn. You may never get that first turn. Those units may be all be dead before you get to take a turn. I played my last GT um, right before the new packets came out, uh, and we were all joking about how this is the last you know GT that'll ever have that that any of us will ever see. And I had back-to-back games where somebody where I seized on my opponent, and then my opponent seized on me. And I'm like, well, we'll never see that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you absolutely have to be ready for the seize to exist. And and you can also do that from a defensive perspective, where if, you know, it looks like you are going to be going second and then you have the opportunity to seize, it can be useful to have some units that are in a position where, like, if the seize happens, I can take advantage of that. But on the other hand, sometimes you, you don't want to seize. Uh, that's another thing I see that people do a lot and make a mistake. of Like, they seize when they have deployed defensively, and then they sort of, like, look down at the table like, oh, I guess I just, like, sit here and waste my turn? Oops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't roll for that seize unless you have a plan for it. Don't just, like, take the seize and, like, oh, of course I'll try and seize. Well, also, don't assume, uh, if someone has the choice of going first or second, don't assume they're just going to go first every time either. Yeah. I've had so many puns, like, I'm a good roll seize. I want to go second, guys. Yeah especially in ITC and many of the other progressive scoring missions, going second is very strong. And speaking of, let's let's go ahead and talk about the I Go, You Go deployment that the I- ITC uses now. Mm-hmm. This is honestly, I think, a, a really big swing in terms of just how armies play and, and how they have to think about the game. Um, because you don't have to try and predict what your opponent did if you're going second. You've seen what they've done. You know everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. So just working with perfect information, I know I am going second, I know where all his units are, is a very powerful tool. Yes. So what you have is you have both information and the whole decision of choice, so you can make the optimal defensive plays, offensive plays, threat plays, whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. 
I find I go, you go, you look at it at it on paper and you're like, oh, wow, that gives a lot of power to going second, especially with mission, missions and how they're based and everything else. Um, and I believe there's an entire school of players that also love the side of it going of going first with those lists. Yes. Having 100% information of you will go first and being able to just go all in on like with threat overload lists or other such and mm-hmm. literally have just like nothing that can stop you from, you know, <laughs> from being able to just run over your opponent and no risk of, you know, having to deploy any other way uh, is Mm-hmm. is incredibly powerful actually um and actually lends to some list building and some other ideas it, it's changing the game in meta entirely just based on the fact that most people are playing itc mission mm-hmm. uh and most people have to be able to have a relatively deep impact on turn one or you know have an army that can shelter such an impact uh or do whatever they can and you know get to that turn two um so it just it changes like list building philosophies and you know just the, the approach to the game in general. It does. Yeah, it does allow for some really really aggressive play we haven't really been able to see until this point. Aggressive play, but also uh, board control. Um, you know, it's not just about whether that army is assaulting you. Um, you'll see armies like orcs and tyranids and guard who just sort of catapult themselves into the middle of the board. And they don't actually need to assault you to win because their real objective is just to take control of all of those central objectives and ensure that they are getting kill more and hold more consistently. Uh, And if they're doing that, then they don't actually really care if they're assaulting you. They're winning the game regardless. To build on what Sean said, the jumping that middle of the board, there are that's the majority of the bonus missions now. Yep. Revolve around controlling that middle of the board uh, or at least controlling the objectives that are there. Yes. With an aggressive army, you can just jump the middle of the board to sco- and score, um, hold more bonus, uh, and hold, and then you don't even need to kill anything. <laughs> yeah, potentially. And you're you're gonna outscore in primaries. You you literally don't need to kill anything, and it's yeah, it's it's insane um, what you what you can do now with a with planned movement and such. And and the critical thing there is that you do have that perfect information. You know where your units are going to go, and you know you are going first. You don't know anything about the enemy army, but you may not care anything about the enemy army. Um, that's especially true for horde armies that may just not really be interested in where the enemy deploys all that much. Um, because horde armies tend to just not have a lot of options as far as deployment goes. They, they occupy so much space that... Uh, their ability to change the way they deploy can often be fairly limited. Yeah, they care far more about auras than they do about space on the board and terrain. Yes. Uh, That's actually something that I see a lot of players do, is they'll put their characters down last, uh, because they're still thinking of deployment like a movement phase, so it's like, well, I have to put my unit down, and then I can put my character down so he's protected. Um... But I know a lot of higher-level players uh, will actually put characters down first um, because, obviously, they can't be shot during deployment, so it doesn't matter that they're down first. Uh, but allows them to plan where their auras are going to be and then shape their units around that. It's actually my favorite thing about IGO-UGO deployments is being able to just kind of like futz around and be like, okay, put this guy here, put this guy here, mm-hmm. move this all around here. You don't need to put anything in place 100%. You can you can kind of just like build as you go then yes, and then say, oh, I'm done, and then boom, your army's deployed. You, can, you don't 
you don't need to like be precisely planned uh, with the with the build as you go. You can be like, oh, okay, I'm gonna put wrap these boys around here, put this character here. Oh, I didn't leave enough room for that other character. No big deal. Move my guys, put them there. Like, right. You can do that with the, with your with the all in one deployment. Mm-hmm. Yes, I go. You go tends to be more forgiving, broadly speaking. It does also reward players uh, who are very skilled and can predict what the enemy is going to do, kind of as we already discussed. Um, you know, if you can look at your opponent's army and say, I know what you're going to do, even if you're going first, you may know where they're going to deploy. Yes. Um, the the other thought uh, I see in the alternate deployment is people try to play... This is how, you, how I can quickly find out if someone's going to be a mind game player and sitting there going, ah, yes, I'm going to trick you out with this fancy thing. I'm like, I really dislike you already. <laughs> They'll give it away in deployment so you can brace yourself accordingly for the rest of your three-hour experience. Right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about terrain as well, because obviously terrain is going to affect your deployment significantly. Who knew? It even comes in a, a step ahead of deployment where you're picking your deployment zones and whatnot. Um, terrain should obviously be a consideration there, um, but the terrain you have available is going to affect where you can put your units a lot, uh, especially if you have units that for one reason or another, want to be trying to hide out of line of sight or get cover. Yes. There's a, there's a couple things there. There's the idea of where can I hide? Where can they hide? Where are my firing lanes? Because you usually can't shoot through objects that block your line of sight. Yep. And where can I move? Because like where a knight goes is super dependent on its ability to get into the board. That's extremely true, yes. Um, because, yeah, large units, especially vehicles that don't have fly or whatnot, can be fairly limited in how they're able to cross the board. So you might have to take a more exposed position. Um, in a Chaos Knight summoning list, for example, you need one of your guys to have a bead on enemy something so he can sit there and shoot and not be useless while he summons that turn. Yep. My thing about firing lanes specifically is responding to your opponent's firing lanes, um, especially with with in combination with their with their reach and range. Um, I'm very peculiar being like, okay, just by deploying this way in my own deployment zone, I'm make I'm ruling out forty percent of my arm my opponent's army, and that that's a happy zone for me. Yes. And then they have to decide if they want to have to split that firepower up or what they want to do a bit about it. Um, one big culprit that comes to mind is a Leviathan Dreadnought because he's easy to hide from and mm -hmm. you know move around or do whichever. And you don't exactly have to come to him because his range is relatively short. Yes. Um, and you you touched on the the whole idea of reach and range. You know, obviously everyone knows what gun range is. Uh, melee range is twelve inches for pretty much everything. Uh huh. Reach is really just the expansion of that, you know, how far can a unit move before doing things? So a unit that moves six and shoots 24 has a reach of 30 inches. Um, if it can advance, it's 31 to 36 inches. But that reach and their, that, that ability to, like, how far can I affect the enemy from is going to be absolutely critical to where you deploy your units because that is going to dictate so much of where units have to go mm -hmm. and if they don't go in those places 
then they just don't affect the game and they may as well not be there for a turn or two turns or three turns even. Yeah, I have a I have a story about how I uh, took third place at a major um, in round six of a tournament where literally just a reach and range situation. Mm-hmm. My opponent was playing uh, Derradeos and Lord Discordance, um, and I had and I had Met Guns mm-hmm. and sh- and Shock Attack Gun. I just measured out and I asked, "How much do they move?" And he goes, "Oh, they move this many inches." I'm like, What's their range? Cool. I'm gonna park one, just one inch outside of that. All of my guns that have 48 inch range. Mm-hmm. So he was essentially powerless to do anything in his turn one. I think he got killed like one group of grots, and then I ripped apart the majority of his dreadnoughts, and then move and then move blocked his uh, his Lord Discordance, um, and it was a relatively easy win. 100% one in deployment. Yep. If you can deny your opponent a full turn of shooting just by manipulating range, that is absolutely enormous because it's those early turns of the game where things are often decided um, because that's where people have the most firepower available. It's, it's where things are all set up. So just like saying like, oh, you don't get to play the game turn one. That can be backbreaking for a lot of armies. Yeah. As Ben said, you can counter deploy where it's like, okay, I'm going to force you into these really tight firing lanes. Mm-hmm. I've taken 80% of your firepower away. You can't put that much stuff in line of sight. Yes. Uh, can also be very good in that sense for forcing your opponent to split their firepower. Um, because, you know, typically you're going to want to shoot all your guns at the same target until you kill it and then move on to another target. You don't want to do like one or two wounds each to every unit in your opponent's army. But if the terrain is clumped in such a way that they are unable to focus their firepower, that can also be very powerful. There are a handful of units uh, running around either using stratagems or psychic shenanigans that have a much greater reach than they appear. Um, where it's like, oh crap, it's a Grey Knight army. Well, those paladins, one unit is probably getting on top of you turn one. And there's very, you gotta like go, okay, well what if I sit in craters so that they have a minus two to charge? Now they can't really get into me. Right. Yeah, you you do have to look at all the movement options your opponent has available when you're considering what your what their reach is. Uh, but typically that is going to be limited to, you know, perhaps at most one unit in their army, not every unit in their army. You know, most of their units are going to have to move normally. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about something I see a lot of players do, which is deploying on the line. Oh, oh, the firing lane style. Yeah, and well, and it's it's at its worst when it is a shooting army doing this, where they just sort of line their army up across the board. Everything is standing on the tiptoe of the front forward because they they have that thought of like, well, you know, if deployment dictates how far I can move, then I want to deploy as far forward as possible because I want to get as close to the objectives as possible. Um, and they just they set themselves up and well 24 inches is not that far these days guys a lot of units can cross that 24 inch gap really easily it's even worse on the 18 inch gap deployments yes and with with I go you go there's not there's not a whole lot of punishment there there's reason to i don't know if i'd exactly do it with a gunline army maybe tau riptides don't really care um but there's it, there's definitely a a, a a, a decision process needs to be made on whether you deploy on the line or not. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's a no. 
Um, but there's plenty of times where it's a yes, and depending on what type of unit you're doing it with, um, and the and the style of deployment that you're running into. It makes way more sense for like a unit of three boys to be on the line than your Daredevil Dreadnought necessarily. Yeah, as, as Sean was 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 discussing it, it's it's a relatively newer player mistake to want to put everything on the front line. Yeah, it, you have to stagger stuff out. You have to zone your back out from reserves. Um, you have to set up counter charges. Like you know that unit's going to get charged. Set up a counter charge. Uh, you know there's there's a lot that that needs to happen. Uh, in as, as you're doing it and discussing as to why you're doing it uh, versus just doing it just cuts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but that that is, I think, the classic mistake is like I put all my units forward because I, because I want to be able to get into the center of the board or whatnot, uh, which can often be a mistake. You generally don't want everything forward. And oh god, Death Company are here. <laughs> yeah. Of course, if you are on the other side of that equation where you are the player who is being aggressive, where you have that unit of 30 boys, where you have that, you know, squads of daemonettes or whatever other fast assaulting units you have, um, you are going to want to deploy on the line. But you're going to still have priorities for who gets on the line because you can't put your whole army on that front line unless it is exceptionally small um so you're gonna have to make choices about which units are getting priority there mm-hmm. uh, and it's typically gonna be the faster ones that you're gonna want to get up towards the front like that yeah and um and you don't really want to put slower ones in front because they can block yourself which is silly and awkward exactly another sort of point of consideration of that haha point um is on those 18 inch deployment distances uh which is typically going to be the pointy versions of dawn of war and uh hammer and anvil where there's a relatively small gap between the two armies whatever unit is going at the very tip of that point should probably be one of your best units um, because it has the best chance of getting in. So if you're setting it up there and getting it ready for an assault, make sure you're getting ready for an assault with your best guys uh, or maybe even your two or three best squads if you can sort of like extend a tendril up there. And one thing I like to do here is see what my opponent has the ability to do with like a fast assaulting unit. Does it have fight again? Does it have the ability to, you know, go get into a unit behind a unit if they kill it? Mm-hmm. And then I'll like I'll sacrifice one point two inch one point one inches to just put some grots in the way, um, and make them have to you know charge and kill grots and then do nothing, um, and you know it's still setting up a counter charge. It's just a very very minute one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or you're like, oh man, they're gonna have this. Uh, Magnus is gonna launch forward and dump a bunch of psychic crap in my face. Turn one. I'm gonna put disposable guardsmen in front of my tank. Absolutely. Uh, you're, the whole like screening and move blocking and all of that kind of stuff, that all starts at deployment. Um, you're you're going to be doing it during your movement phases, but deployment is where you, you're getting ready for that. And it can start happening on turn one. Uh, that's absolutely something you need to be prepared for right away. Yeah, whether it be um, redeployment strats or, you know, things where you pick up the army... Yep. Or things that just move incredibly fast for no god dang reason. <laughs> Gene Steelers. 
And we know the reason why they move fast. It's Swarm Lord. Um, you, 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 have to, you, you have to be aware of those. Don't get caught off guard. People get gotcha'd by it all the time, um, even even at higher level tables. Yeah. I, I've seen very respectable players literally forget the jump exists. Mm-hmm. So you you definitely have to be ready to pick, oh, I'm going to get assault to turn one no matter where you deploy, even if it's way in the back corner. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there, there's plenty of things you can do at deployment to prevent that uh, between your screening and whatnot. Um, but just, you know, that's definitely something you need to consider. Yeah, why don't we actually talk about redeployabilities a little bit? Because we've touched on those a number of times. But there are there are a number of sort of alternative deployment or redeployment abilities that can be very critical to the way you take your that deployment phase. Yes, um, Pathfinders and Crute are some of the ones that come to my mind. So the the sort of scout movement style where you you know pregame get a movement of X number of inches. Yes. So those can either expand out your pushback zone, um, forward you into the center of the table in some way, or tuck you back behind cover in a gotcha against your opponent. Sure, you can absolutely bait with those sort of abilities. But you'll often, I mean, the obvious use is, of course, shoving them towards the enemy, either to, to block the enemy out or to get them as aggressively up as possible, as you'll see with, like, Alpha Legion or uh, Blood Angels or something like that. Another thing that comes to mind for uh, redeploy isn't exactly um, the ability to redeploy, but the ability to deploy outside your deployment zone. Yes. And that's going to be with uh, the the all-important Space Marine Scout, but... Um, there's, you know, there's infiltrators, there's incursors, there's nerglings. Lots of stuff. Yeah, it's a pretty common ability. But there's a handful of units that do this, uh, and I go, you go, it's can be relatively devastating almost. Um, but at the same time, uh, if you have the ability to take advantage of them, please do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- those are those are super uh, important, and th- that's during deployment is when they make the most impact. Yeah. And that may be from either placing themselves aggressively or, or again, just getting onto objectives. Um, It can be surprising how much of a game swing it is to start controlling five objectives in the board, uh, where you just have all these squads of scouts scattered all around controlling every single objective, and now it's on your opponent to push you off of those objectives. And suddenly they are playing a a much more difficult game because they have to deal with your firepower and reclaim objectives. Yeah, nurgling engineers come to mind here, especially. Mm-hmm. The the other redeploy thing that we have uh, touched on briefly is literal redeployments, such as the Eldar Phantasm, uh, Master of Deception, abilities like this that allow you to, after de- both fl- players have finished their deployment, pick some units up and put them down somewhere else. Um, this is extremely powerful against some of those uh, scout units you mentioned or, and, or uh, infiltrating units because you can force them back further than you otherwise might. Um, but it's also very good for baiting your opponent into making poor choices. Yeah, and sometimes they're forced into like one, sh- one obvious set of choices to be in a firing lane, and they know you can just change it, and they'll have to either split it or do whichever, or you can gotcha with them with it. I, I left that one specifically for you because um, I knew how much you love Phantasm. Uh, 
God, Phantasm is such an incredibly good ability, um, especially if you are playing in a game type with Cs, uh, because it's just it's insurance against the Cs, and that is so very very powerful for a mere two CP. If you're in a faction that has an ability like this, you've really got to be eyeing that as a possibility at all times. Mm-hmm. I definitely lost a practice game to Ultramarines, not knowing that specifically Ultramarines get to do that i was like oh they're space marines they can't do that and then i was wrong yeah ultramarines have it uh alpha legion has it all varieties of eldar have it in some form although it is slightly different for the different varieties of eldar so maybe you know inquire into that if you were playing a game with or against them Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think who else actually has that ability orcs do via clan Orcs do, that's right. Yeah. Chaylin, can you think of anyone else who has it? Not particularly. Oh, Gene Steeler Cult. Oh, right, that's their whole gimmick. Well, I mean, even aside from blips, they also have an ability to manipulate blips. Um, but yes, Gene Steeler Cult is another uh, prime offender there. I feel like there's some others we're missing, but yes, there are a lot of armies that have access to this ability, and it can be incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. So, why don't we go ahead and take ourselves a little bit of a short musical intermission here, and then we'll get in and talk about some different styles of deployment and some other ways you can kind of manipulate things. So, we've talked a lot about the different ways you can deploy and effect deployment, but let's talk about some of these sort of broad deployment strategies that you see. Uh, to my mind, there are basically, like, two general strategies, uh, which is, well, I guess three. Uh, so you have your central deployment, where you sort of focus as much force on one point as possible. You have a split deployment, where you very, you, you, essentially divide your army into two or three parts and force the enemy to engage each of them individually. Uh, And you have the flank deployment where everything goes to one side rather than being centralized as you attempt to essentially negate half your opponent's army. Does that sort of con with you guys? I think we're missing the null deployment, or where you uh, make a deployment where you present nothing and deep strike the majority of your army, etc. Hmm, that's fair. The Grey Knight way. Yes, uh, and that's essentially a a you're you're typically trying to hide and reserve as much as possible. What does wind up on the table does follow one of the three general formats, though. Um, usually, it winds up getting split up because there's no reason to necessarily castle. Yes. Uh, if you're planning to re-manipulate where stuff is. If you don't have a reason to centralize, it is better to spread out in order to take a maximum advantage of terrain. So let's talk about that central deployment a little bit first, because I think that's the most obvious of them. Um, a lot of people will do this just one by default, uh, because you put your good units next to each other so they can protect each other. Also, auras. 
yes, auras are a, a central reason. You want as many guys to get affected by Guillemin as possible. So you put all your units next to Guillemin. Um, and this is sort of the fundament of like the castle style deployments and armies is just everything goes into one super packed little ball of force and that ball rolls forward and destroys things. Yeah, this is this is super popular in the meta right now. Um, among almost every army type, you're, there's going to be a central style deployment you're going to see. You're not seeing many armies take advantage of the split deployments. Uh, and the split deployment styles of armies, like flyers and such, are kind of taking um, a, a nose down in the current uh, in the current type of meta we're seeing. Um, so the reasons for this are as as follows. We you know we talk about why you want a castle. Um, you got you have your auras, you have your characters, you have uh, every reason why you would want to be put up, and then you also have um, the ability to counter charge and kind of react to what your opponent does to your blob, as long as your blob remains threatening to your opponent at all times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With uh, split deployment, uh, one of the things about there is if your opponent has a big castle blob, you can counter with a split deployment because now they have to decide where they need to go. Are they going to go after one half your army or the other half of your army? And it can help you buy time in defense sometimes. Presuming they can't engage both simultaneously, which is going to depend on a lot about what their range is. Mm -hmm. If they are able to go after both has at once because they have a 36 or 48 inch shooting reach, then they don't care that you split. Uh, and I think this may actually have is part of the reason the split deployment is not as useful right now because split deployment is really at its best when your opponent's reach is very short, mm-hmm. especially against melee. That's where split deployment really shines. A unit can't be in two places at once. It can only occupy one spot on the board. So if half your army is in the left corner and half your army is in the right corner, they have to choose where they send their assault units. And if they send all their units at one half, well, then you get to shoot at them and then they get to your units because you probably can't destroy their entire army before they reach you. And then once they've destroyed that half of your army, they're on the wrong side of the board and 48 inches away from the other half of your army. And that's a long slog to make. Yeah, between... Between your, them not interacting with your army that well and you splitting up and being like, oh, well, you can only shoot this or uh, you can only attack this, you kind of control what your opponent's doing with that blob. Um, they also don't really play large amount of missions well, mm-hmm. um, especially missions that are like across the board from each other. Um, so you can definitely take advantage of that uh, and then know it's a weakness of yours with your central blob, um, which, once again, taking the center of board, specifically in ITC, has become uh, kind of a priority. Yeah, although the central deployment can be a problem if the objectives are relatively spread out, because that blob just may not be large enough to control more than one or maybe two objectives, Uh, and that just may not be enough. Mm -hmm. If there are six objectives on the board and they're all spread out pretty distantly, the blob is going to struggle to take them all. Uh, Which leads us to uh, placing objectives, which also happens in deployment. Yes. Is if your opponent is likely to castle, spread the objectives out. Yeah, this is not part of deployment proper, but it should be something you are thinking about, not only as part of deployment, but immediately prior to when you are putting these objectives down. Um, It's the deployment before deployment, if you will. Um, So you have to be looking at where am I going to deploy? Where is the enemy going to deploy? What is their reach like? Where are they going to move? It's all the exact same things you think about during deployment, just 
one deployment phase before deployment. Yeah, the important thing here for me is firing lanes and travel lanes. Yep. If it if it's an objective, I need a place in my opponent's deployment zone. I want to put it in the worst stupid place possible for them. I'm gonna make it the hardest to get to, the farthest away from where they want to deploy. I want to make it in my firing lane. I want to try and hit all these check boxes that make that make them have to pay for taking that objective. Mm -hmm. You often want to put them out in the open especially against armies that have a lot of infantry or other units that can easily get covered. Just placing that objective out in the open and as close as possible to yourself is often a solid bet. Um, now, that said, there are units who are fine out in the open, um, so if they have knights, you may want to put it inside a ruin or somewhere else inconvenient to them. Um, but you really you need to be looking at where don't they want this objective, um, and and how are they going to interact with objectives, and how can I make that as bad as possible for them? The last thought is uh, you can't put an objective within twelve inches of another objective. Yes. So where do you want them to not have an optimal objective is also a thought because you can block with an objective. If there is a perfect little like you know, square ruin that they can just, like, hide that one little bitty squad of guardsmen or grots or whatever inside and be totally protected in there. If you put that objective, you know, right around 12 inches away from it, out in the open somewhere, suddenly that ruin is useless to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing objective-wise to consider also during deployment is what secondaries did they take? Specifically, old school comes to mind here of... If you can deny a first turn kill and give that huge point swing, re-deny a secondary, deny a kill, deny a kill more, um, that's a three point swing on its own. That is one of the, my favorite things about going second and having an army able to you know hide is just be like, oh cool, you don't get old school. Yep. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And you, you're by the same token, know what your own secondaries are going to be and what you have to do. If you took old school for whatever reason, you have to get a kill on that first turn. You must be ready to do that. That puts you in a very particular position. Uh, similarly, if you've taken recon or behind enemy lines or any of these, that's going to dictate where you need to move over the course of the game and where your units need to be. So never, like, don't take recon and then belatedly realize, like, oh, I'm going to have to move some units over to the other half of the board here. Um, you, can't, you can't do a refused flank deployment where you just, you know, empty half the board if you've taken recon because you, your units have got to get over there. It's just they're completely incompatible. You can also try and kind of fake out your opponent here um, with the idea that, oh, maybe I'm, they're going to deny this or... Maybe they didn't set up for recon when you're like, no, I I just wasn't going to try and get recon turn one, and here come my reserves. Sure. So planning your reserves out, especially with when you want to try and plan out turn two, turn three, and in some cases uh, being able to put them units back in reserves and have them come back in turn four, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Planning all that all out during deployment on how you want and not autopiloting them is really important to the game, especially when you have suddenly those options to, oh, I can, if I spend more CP and just, I can you know deny old school this turn. Stuff that you wouldn't normally always do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about reserves because I think this is where a lot of people, even very good players, often go into autopilot mode. Uh, where you have these units that like, oh, I put this unit in reserve every game. But there are some games where you shouldn't. 
For a start, one of my personal thoughts is if I'm playing a primarily melee army that doesn't have a lot of shooting, I don't really need to reserve anything. They're going to come at me. In many cases. They're not going to really shoot me, so they're not threatening until they get here. Why don't I put more bullets in the table? Yep. And also have units pre-positioned for countercharges and things like that. Melee armies are a very easy sort of case where, like, your reserve plan may have to change. Now, you may still want some units in reserve in order to claim those distant objectives and whatnot. Don't don't just go the other way and think automatically, like, oh, it's a melee army, I won't put anything in reserve. Um, but you do have to be thinking about it is, again, where am I going to go? Where are they going to go? Where are our armies going to meet? You know, if they're coming to me... Where do I want them to engage me at? Shay mentioned earlier getting your units into a crater to be prepared for those paladins. This is exactly where your deployment should be setting that up. Uh, where you can say, like, okay, I know they're going to do this. I need to be ready for it. And that can include turn one reserves, uh, like the jump and stuff like that that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. you, you need to be ready for that immediately against some armies. Yeah, another option I like to think about here is sometimes if you have a shooting unit in reserves, um, obliterators come to mind, and you need that extra shooting power turn one, um, and specifically in cases that you know you're going to go first and you're likely going to have range, even though they have a relatively short range, mm -hmm. you do put them on the board. Um, yep. You, you don't autopilot them. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and then with like Tau Commander, stuff like that, you, you kind of, you had to math out like, okay, um... I do want them here now. Uh, wait until turn two actually is a horrible mistake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I've lost a game, a very important game, autopiloting my Mega Knobs before, where I chose to deep strike one group, put one group on the board. Had I just put both groups on the board, it's a relatively easy game. I completely screwed myself. Yeah. Uh, knowing when you need that firepower, especially for those hard-hitting units, is really big. My personal choice is, do I leave a sacrificial strike squad in front of my paladins as a screen? Sure. Uh, to, you know, stop stuff like, uh, you know, early charges or psychic powers or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Another really key thing uh, with reserves is think about what your opponent's firepower is. Uh, because it may be that you have a unit that is critical to your army that you're going to need on turn two or three that they're just going to erase from the table. And so it may be that you need to put that unit in reserve, even though it's very important to you and it may be, like, critical to your game plan. But oftentimes those units don't really do a lot on turn one. Um, it's like if you have that, what, commissar that is, uh, you know, holding all your morale together, turn one is probably you're not going to be making that many morale checks. It's once you get into the, the middle-late game where you really need to be making those morale checks. So protecting them by putting them in a transport or reserve early on can be very critical uh, because it preserves those units for later in the game where they have a larger impact. One other critical thing with reserves, if your opponent has the ability, turn one, to spread across the table and basically stunt any reserve plan you had... Yes. Just start them on the table. You will go faster. There, There is that flip side that I definitely wanted to mention. I'm glad you mentioned it, Shaylin, because um, the other move to the jumping orcs is 30 bodies on 32 millimeter bases occupy a ridiculous amount of space at two inches apart. Um, and if, you're, if your opponent chose to deep strike a thousand points of dudes, um, they have nowhere to go. 
I've I've seen players lose four, five, six hundred points of models because an orc or tyranid player spread across literally the entire table so that there was nowhere that those reserves could be legally placed. So absolutely keep in mind not only where do I want my reserves to go and what are they going to need to do, but where am I going to be able to place my reserves? Because your your opponent is going to try and interfere with them. They're going to do as much blocking you out of the table as they can manage. And you can take advantage of that, but you are going to have to keep an eye on, like, am I going to be able to place myself onto that objective over there, or is the enemy going to spread over there and I just won't be able to get within 12 inches of it anytime soon? Mm-hmm. And to transition easily, um, you can actually somewhat change your deployment type if you do choose to reserve half your army. Yes. And even if you don't have reserves, I'd like to talk about transforming a deployment that you may not like. Why don't you explain what you mean by a, a transformative deployment? Because this actually isn't a concept I see a lot of people talk about, but I think it's actually very useful. So there are sometimes deployments in terrain don't exactly add up to how you want them to be, um, but via movement, reserves, etc., your army is able to turn one deployment into another. Um, what comes to mind mostly is turning Vanguard Strike, which is your uh, triangles in each corner with 24 inches apart, um, you can you can transform that one pretty easily into uh, a hammer and anvil style or a um, or Dawn of War. You more you're more likely to see it get transferred into uh, transformed into hammer and anvil because you open up uh, two firing lanes instead of one because there's usually some large L's or large uh, train in the center. Um, and you open up two firing lanes. You're typically getting on another objective, mm-hmm. and you're decreasing that melee range that they have to typically your right side in that deployment. Uh, so if you're playing a, a ranged army that wants to take advantage of that, um, you either back into the you can you have one choice of either I back into the corner and you know castle up uh, and become a bit more constricted and only have one um, objective, or I can turn into hammer and anvil. Yeah. You also see this with like your chaos type armies, uh, where they kind of have that 24 inch threat blob, whether it be like plague bears or possessed bomb or whatever. They all kind of revolve around a big character blob and a bunch of stuff in front of them and some playmakers and such. Uh, they like to turn that type of th- that type of deployment into a different type of deployment because they don't want to be that spread out and in that direction. Mm-hmm. And like, and if you do castle up, you can turn any deployment into another deployment. It usually you're doing it flowing around objectives or how your opponent deployed. So I, I've definitely turned you know a Dawn of War corner castle situation into my own hammer and anvil because I didn't want to address with that long stretch of a board. Yep. So if you have the opportunity to, you know, through movement and through reserves, change one thing into another, and even if it takes a turn, but it makes your game so much better and gives you more options and firing lanes and objectives, please do it. Just that board's still open to you, and it just you're just literally, if your opponent can't answer it um, or you force your opponent to answer it, they're playing your game and you're not playing theirs. Yes. Exactly. That that uh, that transformative deployment is great because that's that's a perfect example of sort of anticipating what your opponent wants to do and responding to it preemptively. Uh, you're you're taking control of the game state, knowing what they want, and moving your opponent, moving your units into a way that they are going to struggle more to deal with. Yeah, you can kind of one two combo it too, where like. You deploy into such that your deployment looks one way, mm-hmm. then you redeploy to the other, and then transform it, and then suddenly their their entire deployment's out of whack, um, and you could have just won the game there. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, especially against those sort of more limited reach armies, that can be just backbreaking for them. Mm-hmm. My other personal favorite is sometimes people castle up in a corner expecting you to castle up in the opposite corner and you just castle up on Dawn of War directly across from them and you're like, I don't know why you did that, dude. Yeah. When when your opponent heavily favors one corner of the board, that can often be a great chance for you to take advantage of the way they've uh, deployed. Why don't why don't we go into that a little bit uh, more? Because I think I think there's some meat there. Um, what sort of deployment mistakes do you see that you think are very easy to take advantage of? We already talked about the like you know the wall deployment where you just put everything on the line all across the table. Uh, what else do you guys see that are like very classic deployment mistakes that you can take advantage of? Not enough screens. Yeah. My personal favorite are badly offset screens so now you can play murder hugs all the way through their army what do you mean by offset so like they'll scout move some crews forward a little closer to you now you can assault them turn one hug them assault into them the next turn and basically play assault hopping through their army if they've staggered things the wrong way so, so giving you those, like, stepping stone units to sort of, like, safety hug these guys, and then on your turn, safety hug the next guys, and then, uh, yeah, sort of work your way through piece by piece. Yeah, I've seen many opponents just like, well, I need to layer in so the Grey Eyes don't get into my tower right away. Well, unfortunately, you just gave mess- yourself murder hug stepping stones. Yes. Yeah, my common mistake I often see, especially with playing an army that redeploys on turn one, um, is uh, people using vertical uh, measurements uh, poorly. Mm. Um, so they think they're screened out. And like, oh, you, you can't get here. You're, you're not going to be able to touch here. Well, it's nine inches includes vertically. You measure base to base. Yep. Uh, and now suddenly I, 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 I move my units over here, and now I'm still plenty close to these other units you didn't want me um, to be within, you know, with, to make chargeable. And now I'm, now I'm going to kill them. Mm-hmm. And then, like, mostly just uh, opponents not having knowledge of what exactly orcs are able to do, uh, specifically, like, fight again and such. Like, they should be placing their their backline guys at least four inches behind their frontline guys. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to pile in and fight again and murder them. Mm-hmm. Especially if I'm able to declare a charge in that unit. So I, I've definitely won games 100% based on that, being like, oh, you, you obviously didn't anticipate this, and now I'm going to kill you. Um, I've, I've, this has been at top table LVO. Um, this has been at, uh, this has been, you know, even at more bottom table situations. Even, a lot of players make these mistakes. Um, when, if you see them, it's the more, it's, they're actually the more common, like nuanced things that you don't really know is a mistake. Your opponent doesn't know it's a mistake until you show them it's a mistake. Right. Yeah. The other one is scouting forward when you don't need to be scouting forward. So if you've put your unit of Space Marine Scouts in the middle of the table, um, your opponent can use that as a launching pad if you did not place them correctly or carefully enough. Yeah, I think similarly to that, uh, I see a lot of people do some sort of highly defensive, you know, I'm going to hide all my units and place all my things back here, and then they'll put one or two units of, you know, scouts or infiltrators or whatever uh, up near the re- away from the rest of the army and sort of negate the entire benefit of, like, I've hidden everything except for these three units and you're allowed to kill these three units. Oh, well, that still gets you kill and kill more, doesn't it? Well, to step off what you said, Sean, deploying too defensively is actually one of the worst mistakes I've seen all the time. 
Yeah. I If my opponent's in a position, a defensive position, that he can't interact with objectives well, army, army well, um, and I'm able to just go hold objectives and win the game, I don't need to kill anything. Yep. Mm-hmm. If he's if he's not, and I'm just gonna hold more bonus and hold hold more, I'll I'll just move up and sit. Like if he's anticipating me to come get him, or you know he's he's trying to bait me to come after him. No, I'm I'm cool just sitting here, bro. Yeah. Don't be those two fifth edition armies that just sat right outside of each other's ranges and didn't interact for seven turns. Yes, defense is good. You want to protect your units and keep them safe and all of that, but you still have to play the game. And you need to recognize that, like, at some point, you're going to have to move forward and deal with stuff because you can't just sit in your deployment zone the whole game. That's not a viable plan. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've hit uh, a lot of the major points for deployment, whether it's uh, deployment styles or mistakes or just abilities that people need to keep in mind when deploying. But if there is anything else that you feel like we haven't covered and you have a question about it, or maybe you're just you're unsure about one of the concepts we discussed here, or you have a list or something you want to contact us about and, and get, try and get a little bit of feedback, uh, you can send us an email in in the finest, in the finest hour at gmail.com. Uh, you can also contact us on in the finest hour at Facebook. And if you really like what we're doing and you'd like to support us and you're financially stable enough to do so, you want to throw five bucks each month our way, we do have a private Discord and Facebook group for all of our Patreon supporters, which is, of course, in the finest hour, like our others. Uh, And you get access to all that stuff and sometimes little previews of episodes and a window into what all of us are doing and a nice little community to chat with. Uh, so if you can do that, we really do appreciate it. We would like to thank all of our Patreons very much for helping support us through these difficult times. And also to all the rest of our listeners that even if you don't contribute monetarily, we still really appreciate you coming, hanging out with each, hanging out with us every week, uh, when we're all sort of, uh, lacking in ways to hobby effectively right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you enjoyed the wonderful tunes that you heard at the beginning and intermission of our show, um, you can thank Dankmuse. Uh, you can catch his other work on YouTube, um, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And if you like the fabulous artwork we have going riding around here, you can contract Rylan Woodrow. He's fabulous in every single way. And uh, if you liked seeing our t-shirts the few times they've been out and about, uh, you can contact Stephanie Sherman. All right. Well, I think that covers us for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the end game, the opposite half of the spectrum, how you plan for turns three through six. No Avengers references, we promise. No Avengers references, we promise. I didn't promise. That's why you're the evil host. So, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shaylin Allen. Ben Jurek. Thanks for listening.